What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views, and expert opinions, stay right here for the Canine Paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Glenn Cook, imitating Jasmine Whiting, who ripped off Lofty Fulton. Let's kick this bit. <laughs> that should 100% be the new intro. Yep. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook. I'm also sitting here with Mr. Forrest Mickey, Mr. Josh Moran. And so formal. about 30 other people all looking at me. Say hello. Make some noise. <laughs> so it's Friday night. Just day done. one of the seminar. Yeah, We've done one. Just done day one. And There's it went well. Some, yeah. It's gone very well. We're very right, happy with yeah. it so far. Yeah, it was all right. It's had right. fun. It's <laughs> hard. Yeah. Not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that you guys had like a bit of a game plan, things that you wanted to show people rather than just get your dog out and let's fix a problem. Did we? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. We, did we you? talked about that actually. So um, I don't know what everybody's experiences with seminars, but I think like half of it, there's a woman named Sylvia Bishop. She's a trainer from England, obedience trainer. Do you guys know who Sylvia Bishop is? I'm speaking not to the people listening to this tomorrow, but the ones in the audience right now. So I went to a, a seminar. I, live, I used to live in Napa Valley, and I went to a seminar that she was uh, putting on there. She's, she was like 80 years old, full of energy, this fiery, uh, really awesome obedience trainer. She came in and she goes, this day is for me. Day one is my day. Is she Australian? That, was that Australian? <laughs> <laughs> that actually sounded like Rolf Harris. Yeah, or she's like, like, oh, listen here, darling. Oh, oh, oh. However Dave does it. But she goes, <laughs> so she goes, this, today is my day and tomorrow's your day. And so she presented things that she thought was important for people to uptake. And then the second day was, tell me what you'd like to work on. And I'll be happy to help you with that. And I thought it was a good model because part of it is, these are important things that you might not know or haven't been exposed to. So let me share them with you. Cause I'm interested in them and I think they're important or worth your time. So I hope, I hope, you know, I forced some stuff on you this morning, but it's not new and uh, I think it's worth it. It's stuff that I'm interested in. So then maybe I assume you'd be as well. And then there's a part of it that says, what do you want to work on? And maybe I have something to offer you in that sense. So there's an interesting saying that I've used a few times. It was told to me a while ago and it was, it comes from Henry Ford and it said when he was inventing the electric motor car, people said, well, why didn't you ask people what they want? Why did you just invent the Model T? And he said, well, if I asked people what they wanted at the time, all they would have said is I want faster horses. So that's kind of like at seminars, you'll go there and people will arrive and, and some people have an agenda of things they want to do and want to achieve. Other people have got no idea what they want to do. Mm. They come there and, you know, like even with people with dog spots, I've spoken to people for years and they've said, I don't know what I'm going to do when I'm going to get up there. Mm. I'm, I'm either going to shit my pants or mm. I'm, and I'm just going to stand there quaking in my boots mm. or I'm going to, you know, get involved in it and hopefully learn something. You, and in experience, from what I've seen, both things happen. Someone shit their pants. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys have the, the saying here, I don't know whether to shit or go blind? 
<laughs> oh, uh, what? Go think, blind? Yeah. Is that from our country? I think we're yeah. going to now. Yeah, yeah like you, you need to. What, you need to elaborate on that now, Josh. That's I've just heard it. I don't. I mean, <laughs> but it's it's also time consuming to um to do individual work. So there's also an efficiency thing, like getting some good information out there mm. by saying we're going to cover this particular subject matter and put everybody through it, whether, whether you care to or not, I submit it for your consideration. It's up to you whether you want to go deeper with this stuff when you leave here today, but hopefully you understand the concept and know how to implement it if you choose to. And so that can happen quicker. Uh, and then the individual stuff takes longer. What's mm -hmm. your, what's your issue? Oh, there's things developing right now that we should tackle. Let me give you more information. Oh my gosh, it's changing course. We need to ch you know plan our course differently. So but uh, that's not such a bad thing either. No, it's if essential, you're at a seminar it's essential it, but maybe not for two or three days straight. Yeah. Just on, on that as well, we have an active microphone here. So during the talk, we'd like to invite people up from the audience if they've got a question for anyone on the panel, especially where you've got these two guys here in the country. So at any stage, we'll have a little chat at the start. And uh, as we go along, come up, grab the mic, switch it on and ask your question to the person on the panel, and hopefully they can answer that for you. I didn't know that. I wouldn't have agreed to this. <laughs> I thought it was going to be question and answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one thing that you and I were in the car the other day, or all you, Dave, myself, and Josh were all in the car. We were going up to the Hunter Valley, and we started talking about the whole concept of control. And I really love that that conversation that we were having, like we were, we were jamming it out and mm -hmm. talking about, I have this concept, which Forrest has a counter concept to it about the illusion of control when we're actually training dogs. And that is, is that we create this environment where we give dogs a belief system that when we're doing training, we're empowering dogs with this belief of control. And it's kind of it's done to us too through the use of psychology. It's, it keeps us happy. It keeps us content and it keeps us in line. It keeps us under control. And it's given to us as this ability to exist in a world, which is a realm of a world, which is orchestrated. I know this sounds deep and it's like a lot of psychology here, but we kind of do that for dogs as well. And I was talking to Forrest about this and he has a different take on it. He believes that dogs are actually in control and do believe that they have a level of control. Over to you, buddy, because let's jam on this. We can go backwards and forwards and talk about it. Yeah, man, I haven't drank wine in a while, <laughs> and uh, I'm feeling it. <laughs> Try to. So that was a good conversation, and I appreciate it as well. And I think it really depends on how you... A lot has to do with how you envision your what you want for your relationship with your dog. And so it transcends the sport training that we're doing, activating your dog into something, deactivating them the environments you put yourself into with your dog, how you live with them on a daily basis. It's all of these things kind of combined and put together. I think actually what, it, what you had said is that we create, we give the dogs the illusion of control. And I, I felt like I don't, I didn't want to accept that I, that I gave that or I lived dishonestly with my dogs like that, that I said to, that I said to them, I'm going to give you the illusion of control, but you don't really have it. And of course, um, good training says that we must equip our dogs with the skills to navigate this really crazy world that we ask, we invite them into with us. And so there's things that we have to do to prepare them just like you would a human child, probably. Uh, but I don't think I lied to them, not in my sport training, not in my everyday life. And what we kind of, what we had talked about was um, something that transcends the 
mechanical training that we do and also the transactional training that we do. There's a book called If Dogs Prayers Were Answered, Bones Would Rain from the Sky. It's written by Suzanne Clothier. In there, she references an essay written by a horse trainer in an equine magazine that was published in the United States in 1995. I haven't been able to find the article, but it's called Spiritual Harmony. And it talks about three levels of a relationship. Mechanical, you lure your dog into a sit. Transactional, you lure him into a sit. You pay him with a piece of food in hopes that the sit happens more in the future. And spiritual, like why the hell you even do that for each other? Like what it all means, Basil, in the long run. And I really strive to function on uh, like that spiritual level with them. So I understand very well, probably more than a lot of people, which maybe is why I'm here in this country teaching you right now, what mechanical and transactional training is. I made a living doing it. I've created dogs that perform really well in competitions doing it. It wasn't enough for me in the, in the end. So I'm back to pursuing something more spiritual with them. And I had to remove myself I removed myself from, <laughs> so I, I separated myself a little bit from some sport training. Um, I isolated myself a little bit just from things that I didn't feel like were, were healthier on balanced. And I got back to just living with my dogs in a more holistic way. Here's a quick story. I was in South Padre Island vacationing with my best friend. He's passed now, but we were 19 years old and I was on the beach with him hanging out and I saw this guy running on the beach with his German Shepherd off leash, had nothing on him. He was just cruising down the beach and the German Shepherd was right next to him, running right next to him. And I saw this, I hadn't had my own dog at that time, growing up with him, but never had my own dog. It was everything I wanted. It was right there on that beach, this guy running with his German Shepherd next to him. It couldn't have been a more pretty picture for me at that time. And so I had to be closer to it. So I ran up. I chased this guy down. And as I got closer, his German shepherd, his dog sensed what was going on and turned to me and went, Rawr! and I stopped and he stopped. He said, Hey, don't ever sneak up on me or a dog. He said, gave me some sense or a dog. And he took off running. He didn't say anything. And his dog took off running with him. And that was even more impressive to me for some reason. <laughs> That's when I, like, that's why I wanted to be a dog trainer. I had no idea what perfect healing was or value transfer or primary to secondary or any of this other stuff that is really neat to geek out on, but wasn't really at the essence of why I'd gotten into it. So there's something in it there. Back to you. No, I, I can add to that. It's a funny one. I think, you know, a guy, Gary Cassera kind of went the same circle. He, when I was at Michael Elsa school, he was there you know, working as a helper or whatever. And he did the same. He, he started out with Cesar Milan, was like an off-camera trainer with him, then spent time with Michael and then has gone full circle again, is just back to living with dogs. And he kind of expressed a similar thing to me. He's a bit of an urban hippie himself, uh, <laughs> was that he just was like, why? Why am I doing that? Um, and it was, I think he kind of unpacked it to just being, it's just my ego trying to show that I can do these things with my dog. But if I was to ask my dog, like it, it, she's doing it for the things that I give her and I'm happy to give those to her regardless of whether she does the things or not. So we can just hang out together. And he went from the capability of being a really high level competitor to, <laughs> to, to just living with his dogs. Right. Yeah. In the same kind of cycle, I can change his training cycle and, and everything. Mm. So it's an interesting thing. I think it's not uncommon for people to, to swing around, it sort of ebbs and flows a little bit, yeah. right? Yeah. 
it's just like, if you can incorporate them into your household, do it. There's something neat about that. There's also like, you'll know your dogs better if you can. It's not always reasonable. It's not always possible. But if you can, I can, I do it. I enjoy it. It fulfills my life in a way that uh, is neat. Um, my, my dogs probably hike on trails better than they heal and position correctly now. It's just what I put my time into lately. Um, they're really good at just cruising around and in my front yard when I stretch in the morning and watch the sun come up. That's part of my routine, and we enjoy doing that together. They like staring at hummingbirds at the feeders and pissing on my tomato plants. And I'm like, I'm happier doing this at this season of my life than I was when I was doing a bit more of the other stuff. And who knows what will be next week or next year or whatever, but right now it's cool. That was, uh, that's all I wanted to do right there. <laughs> Talk about it later. <laughs> What's your take on it, Josh? I think ultimately if we're talking about the illusion of hope or uh, an illusion of control. It's not so much hope. It's more about control. Yeah. So and then it's, I think, I, yeah, go yeah, ahead. No, no, you go. I'm interrupting you. No, I just, I, I think how much I struggle sometimes with the concept of being in control at all. How much of a choice do I realistically have? Am I in control of anything? So I, th I think if you, if you reduce what we know about the world to a simply scientific standpoint, there's only a certain number of atoms that can interact with another certain number of atoms. And those combinations can only take place in a certain number of ways. What the fuck? Man? This is a very <laughs> so, so, this is a very Sam Harris point of view, right? So, so, so I, f I feel that really, really heavily. Like, how much of how much control do I realistically have? Mm. I, I feel so many of us exist on a certain amount of momentum that there's a certain illusion of control. I have a choice I can make, but realistically, there's a possibility that choice may have already been made for me. Well, simply due to the nature of the fact that my neurons blasting off in a specific way are controlled by atoms and those atoms can only construct themselves in a certain number of ways. So I think to a certain degree that argument is, is a little... It's loaded, he's Meta, yeah. Well, you, you look at it from a, a standpoint of a human being. Let's remove dogs from that, that whole conversation. You look at it from a standpoint of a human being... If we buck the system that we're currently all comfortable in and we're allowed to exist in, the minute you buck the system, you realize how little in control you actually are. Then you start getting a, a, like a huge government foot straight up your ass. We're kind of like a government to our dog in a way. You know, we're governing behavior. And it's not like we're, I don't look at it like I'm making an awful life for my dog. That's not what I set out to be. Some people do. That's just the type of person they are. But for me, when I look at, having a relationship for my, with my dog. It's not about having a bad relationship, a terrible relationship, or making my dog feel like it's being conned out of something. That's not it at all. I want my dog to love it. I want my dog to be engaged in obedience. I love anything, you know, like whatever you guys are talking about the topic at the time. Some of the little tips you gave me the other day, Forrest, when we're hanging out in here, they worked. They definitely had an impact on improving things, stuff that I've learned all over the time I've been training. I've added it to the arsenal of what I've done in, in training and it's been it's had an impact it's changed me as a person it's changed me as a trainer however I also believe that if I stop giving my dog what I what he wants then to a degree he'll start having an extinction process on me mm. he'll start thinking do I really want to hang with you anymore you're not so much fun anymore I, I'm I'm going to hang with Josh or Forrest because now they're feeding me and now I'm getting what I want and they're handsome 
and they're handsome. Yeah, they got more hair than you have. You. It's just thinking. And I mean, it, would, it sparked an interesting conversation that we're yeah. having in the car the other day. And I kind of liked it. And I thought, this is going places I haven't thought about before. Right. Because I thought about it in a one-track way. You, have, you had an opposing thought to it. And it made me think. It was a bit of critical thinking yeah. that I hadn't considered before. Mm. I liked it. And I thought... That challenges me as as a person, as somebody who mm. is studying behaviour or studying training. Mm. It's nice to hear a concept that somebody else has that mm. that opposes and and is quite what would you call it's it? Thought provoking. It was thought provoking. provoking. It was provocative yeah, it, it was provocative. Yeah. yeah, I I appreciate. We should do that for each other. We should um, be open and feel safe to talk with each other about dogs in that way. I'll, I'll weigh in just a little bit further on it. We were talking specifically about more of this transactional training that we do with dogs and whether we give them this false perception of control within it. And so examples of that are I control my environment, access to resources and create a system where my dog can strategize within to earn a goal. That could be, we talked about a, a bunch of food in a bowl today. And so we were trying to get dogs to offer a lot of effort or something uh, so that we would then put that food bowl down. And so they feel like they can make that happen. That's what we were trying to convey to them. We also do this with, so we look at like the other side of training. So that would be a, a, an example of positive reinforcement. The dog gives us something and we add something positive. We add some food in hopes that that behavior is more likely to occur in the future. We can also teach dogs to escape unpleasantries or avoid unpleasantries. <clears throat> and they can also feel in control of those things. That's still transactional training. So those are a series of inputs that's meant to govern how a dog is going to respond in a certain situation. And so that that's where we that's where I've existed for a long time. And that's mm. even most of the stuff that I'm talking about this weekend, because I assume that's what people well, that's what I'm, I like teaching. I think it's been useful for me. I've enjoyed it. And a lot of folks identify me as um, a precision obedience or a sport guy. And I like that. Spent a lot of time on it. I'm proud of it. I enjoy it. I want to give it to you. It's been given to me. I want to give it to you. So it's cool. That's, um, that's interesting in itself when you're talking about, you know, like we we're getting dogs to do a series of behaviors and then having it come to the realization that if I do these behaviors, then I'll put the bowl down for it, which is exactly what we orchestrated. Yes. Like we had this overall goal. We had a control mechanism set in place. Absolutely. But when I talk about the illusion of control, that's what we're doing. We're making mm. the dog think this is my idea. Mm. And, th and that, is the, that is genuinely the thing that I came to realize a while ago is that we're empowering the dog with this belief system that this is my genuine idea. Mm. I made this guy or this girl do this behavior for me. Like they put down the food bowl because I made them do it, mm. which is is essentially the dog having this belief of control. Like I make Agreed. you do things by the way I do things. Agreed. Which right. is fantastic. It's not a bad thing. It's a brilliant thing. Yeah. It's, it's just not enough. So I agreed 100%. That is the beauty of the training that we're doing is that we create strategists that exist and feel empowered in this world that we're actually pulling the strings within. Mm. What we had talked about, I'll just take it a step, a step, step further. What we talked about in the car was Elzer is my male Belgian Malinois. He's a really affiliative dog. We used to, the things that he displays to me with ears back and coming up, and looking sweet and soft and the way he looks at me with his eyes and even rolling over because he likes his belly pet and prefers to show me his neck. They used to be looked as submissive behavior. I think it was how it was defined. It's affiliative behavior. He's clearly showing me that we are part of a team and, and he's sort of offering himself to me and I do the same for him. I feel the same towards him. He's a dog also that's never let me down uh, in a trial situation. 
with when we've competed in trials. He's never let me down in, in a trial situation. He's had just the same, my female, on the other hand, has failed three times in very low level trials before she started passing things. They had the same amount of training, a little bit different because they're different dogs. But she was always a dog that was sort of working for herself or the system a little bit. So as I got better at creating a system that the dog can manage themselves within and figure out how to be a successful strategist, my training came together in a way that allowed her to perform at the way that I wanted her to. <clears throat> at home, out in the, like when I'm out on my porch, watching the sun come up or go down or whatever the hell I'm doing, watching Blade Runner and eating mushrooms, <laughs> she's out doing, not saying that that really happens, it might. She, she is much more comfortable and confident on her own doing things. And I, and I allow her that that's like her freedom. She can be, I care about who she is outside of my governance. I'm interested in how, how she, the essence of that animal. And I don't always want to be there to try to influence what's going on. And what I've learned about her is she does quite well without me and she is in control and she checks in and I, I still feed her, but she's also a really freaking good critterer. And catches turkeys and other things out in my yard. So cool. <clears throat> Elzer's never, never failed. He's a much stronger dog. He was more difficult in many aspects in the training. I had to go back and re-teach things that um, I didn't know at the time, but, but I was interested in and so wanted to, so that I could have the picture that I wanted to show him in. But much more affiliative. You could call it pack-driven. Pack I think that's a word we used to use, just affiliative but really cares. And I feel like what I have that transcends the transactional aspect of training. And I think all dogs are capable, capable of this. If we care to pay attention to it and develop it is they just want to be a part of it. Like life. They just care to be there and be a part of it. And the people that know this the best are the ones that don't get into the training that we're doing. I feel like it's, Somebody that doesn't know a lick about training, they've got a dog that just can't take their eyes off of them. Like they're enamored with them and they're enamored back with their dog. And that's to me, I feel like they have everything. And it's like, I could teach you how to heal or show you some things how to heal, but it's not going to make that thing better, which what, what they have there. So I feel like Josh probably, one of the reasons I really like Josh is he's always had just a healthy, grounded look at it. He's a guy that when other trainers would have decided to get some Malinois or some Shepherd, some sporty breed, got a Patterdale because that was what's what was in his heart. Uh, you know, he rescued the pit. He sought out the information. He really took it upon himself to learn this stuff, but he really never, you know, like forgot or got detached from why it was important to him. And at a time now where he's ready to expand himself and nerd out on other aspects of training, he's looking to learn more about the technical things. He's really fucking good at it too. So you take a guy that spent his time developing, you know, l learning about training the way that he has and helping people and they e they seamlessly drift into these more technical feeling oriented aspects of it. Rambling a little bit, but I'll just say this. I'm really happy that I was able to check myself a little bit and not just get too carried away with the other side of it and still stay connected to the boy that just always wanted a dog. And that was me. That was my story. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's mm. all. Yeah. I'll always play with my dogs and I'll always teach them to heal awesome because I enjoy doing it, right? That's part of it. The, um, I'll just say this really quickly. You, you talked about the fella earlier that maybe had kind of come full circle with it. And uh, just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? That's the expression. So um, I'll still play. If I have a Malinois that likes to play, I'll still play with them. And the reason is because it's functional. Mm. 
I, I know how to make play games and I know how to also teach a dog in a high arousal state. And I know how that shit carries over into real life. So I'll always do it. And I'm not going to deny that dog play or act like that doesn't exist within them or deny who they are as an animal. So I always use that was, which is what within them to make them better at being in this world that I've invited them into always do that. And so that's where I would contend with the person that you had mentioned mm-hmm, earlier sure. without going too far into it. I agree a little bit with that. Like yeah. I, and, I've all, and like also to go further into like the competitive stuff and actually have some like successful experience with that. Person. Yeah. I lived that a little bit this morning. So I, see, I got my dog out and just thought, oh, I'll bring him out and let him like fuck around and he bit me and then <laughs> and dragged me around and he's like hey let's do some stuff so every time i got him out we had to do stuff like that's very important to him to do stuff yeah like yeah that is fucking around to him yeah it's important like when i try to just go hey let's be free he's like bit me instead of yeah do nothing right right yeah i had a when elzer was seven months old i was just a maniac with training so i was always doing something and uh, i was running um a kennel and training business in Wisconsin at the time. And so he was seven months old and I would, I just, there's one vivid, uh, memory. I'd kept him out in the kennel. I went and ate some lunch inside. Normally he'd come in with me, but I went back out to the kennel and I was going to let him out. And he was just like, so cranked up and I let him out and he immediately started like pushing me and offering stuff up. And I was like, man, I just felt uncomfortable at the time with just what I was seeing from an animal. He didn't know how to chill out with me. So I just classically conditioned an arousal response to me just to, cause we were always doing something exciting. And so, um, this is where I've spent some time with, uh, Gary. I used to know him or consider him a friend. So I really appreciate the journey that he's on and the dog mind that he is. I just wanted to say that cause you mentioned him earlier, but I took three months off of training and just walked my dog around on a leash and I still played with them, but it wasn't the same with the same intensity or direction that I had earlier. And so that was a cool moment too, for me to strike a balance with it all. And I always kept that, which was cool. It was always, I always enjoyed the walks as much as I enjoyed the healing and just fun to play around with those things. So I would argue a bit that, that playing with your dog, Malinois or not, when you're, when you're talking about having a dog that you'll forever play with, it doesn't jive to me to say that you're, you're, you're striving towards a more, uh, transcendental type of relationship, but that you'll play with them simply because it's functional. And I may have misunderstood what you were saying, but I find that playing with my dog, that's time spent. You know, I don't, I don't do things with people I care about because it's functional for a particular outcome. I do it because that in itself is the function. Mm. I play with my dog because playing with my dog is, it's what we're, we're doing, man. Like he finds value in it. I find value in it simply sometimes because he finds value in it, not mm. necessarily because it's going to lead to a better heel or a better bite. It could, it, it could for sure, obviously, yeah. but, but that isn't at least for me. And I think from what you're trying to, to convey about the path you you're, you're on right now, it doesn't seem to me as that it's simply functioning to give my dog a better score. Mm. I think it's a little sad if you own a dog in general and you have no desire to want to play with that dog. I think that's a terrible state of mind to be in. Yeah. Each to their own. I mean, I know that some people, dogs, are, they serve a purpose and they, you know, there are some dogs that work the land for people and so forth. But even still, I mean, I grew up uh, as a child uh, on my uncle's wheat farm. He had heads of uh, sheep on there. And even with the dogs that were working the, the land for him, he still made time to play with those dogs, yeah. to still cuddle those dogs, to still make them feel that they were worth something and that they were valued and he loved them. And I asked him when I was a kid, I said, do you love these dogs? He said, of course I do. 
he said, they're some of my best friends. Mm. He said, they're with me every single day from five o'clock in the morning to five o'clock at night on the back of the motorcycle and the back of the, th the wheat thresher. He said, these dogs are, are with me more than anybody else I know. He said, yeah, of course I love them. He said, they, they peer into my soul. Mm. And for me, I mean, I've got a little house potato that doesn't do anything in particular. Um, he just runs around and throws up all over the place. But I couldn't, I, I, I mean, sometimes I think I would be lost without his company. You know, he's just, he's a, he's a little doof, but he's, he's an amazing little dog at the same time. He gives me what I need. And one, it's, it's horses for courses because I said to Brett the other day when we were sitting in your kitchen having coffee, I said, you couldn't pay me enough to live with that dog. Like, I, <laughs> we're watching him vomit for no reason and, and have his bum wiped. And I was just like, this fucking dog. Yeah, but you do that, Pat. <laughs> I was gonna, so to, to Glenn's point, though, like, uh, why wouldn't, if, if you enjoy doing it, like, I enjoy play. I enjoy the, the physicalities of it. And to me, it, it meets a desire and need and for the dog, they like it too. Why wouldn't you participate in something that you both enjoy? And what Josh was saying is right. Like I, it actually, I can see how it, it serves or how it helps my dog, you know, be, have skills, gain aptitude or whatever, but also it's just time spent. Like he had said. So if there's something you enjoy doing together, any interspecies, intraspecies, why wouldn't you? So that's an inter one between. That makes sense. I want to hear from some people out here. Yeah. Who's got something to say? Put your hand yeah, up. Come and grab the mic. Alicia? You're on, but uh, mm. keep it close. All right, so I'm on? Yep. So my name's Alicia Shiraman. I just opened up my own company, Marvel Dog Services. So my Did you get licensed to use the name Marvel? or? Yes, or? I did. Okay. Because it's Mar like Marvel is what I can't use, but Marvel Dogs, I could. Okay. Yeah. So Stan Lee didn't come down there and start harassing <laughs> no, no. you and, and demanding to appear in your Demand dog training. Cameo. <laughs> yeah. Stan yeah. Lee ain't doing shit these days. That dude. <laughs> Don't you diss Stan Lee. Well, listen, I love him as much as any other nerd, but he's like in the hospital, I think. <laughs> Back to Alicia. Yep. So um, I guess my thing for is for you, Glenn, where it's the thing that doesn't sit right with me about the illusion of control is I feel like just because we have the ultimate control doesn't mean the dog or like the ultimate say doesn't mean the dog doesn't have any sort of say you know so and like and I think that's the same for people too because I was Forrest's argument yeah yeah mm -hmm. and like my thing was there's like I don't even know what it's called um but it's this thing that's coming out with raising children where it's like you give them choices of like do you want to eat this piece of broccoli first or do you want to eat this carrot first so, like, ultimately, yes, they're going to eat both, but at the same time, like, they still get some sort of choice. Do they, though? Do they eat the broccoli and the carrot, or do they just throw it on the floor like Rip does? <laughs> like, what, what children do you know that eat broccoli and carrot? I want to meet these kids. Oh, I've did. never met them. I did. That was, like, actually the thing when I was younger. I remember it's, like, if I wanted to go play with my stuff, I would eat everything on my plate and that meant I could go quicker and like mm. ultimately yes like you have to eat everything on your plate yep. but you can choose which you do first and I don't think that means there's an illusion of control I think that just doesn't mean that we're giving all control to them mm. you know? it's it's not a topic that I'm right in it's just a topic that I have thoughts about the importance of being well discussing any topic at all is not confirming that you're absolute in what you're talking about it's to talk about it with people who can say well, that's interesting, but it's maybe not be factual. You might not be thinking it through. So yeah. I'm with you guys. Like, yeah. you know, it's it's just something that I had a 
a concept about for a period of time, but I'm happy to change my mind on anything. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, if... What we said was we're, we're both right and both, or neither, neither's right or wrong. Yeah. Well, I think that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to find like a middle ground between the two of cool. you. Because like, mm. yes, they don't have all control, otherwise they wouldn't be in the house. And like Josh said, who does? I think the best time that, like a point of awareness that happened for me a while ago was accepting that I don't always have to be right because I actually felt like I did at one point in my life. Like if I believed a topic strong enough, I thought, no, that has to be right. And that's, uh, I think you're pretty hard limited at that point in time. Like you've lost track of, of reality. Like you're totally self-absorbed. And I was at that point in time. It was a, it was a shitty time in my life and I don't feel like that anymore. And effectively, this is why we want to do things like this and network with people and talk with people is to find out what is the truth. Like, you know, get me as close to it as you possibly can so we can improve the life of, of training dogs. And not only that, but we can actually educate people when we go out there into public and start wanting to work with them. How can we how can we make these people better handlers and enjoy the life and the quality of their dogs even more than what we are doing at the moment? 30 years ago, what I was doing in dog training um, it wasn't bad and I had good mentors and we were doing um, the best with the tools that we, we it's like this movie I saw the other day called Swinging Safari Blade Runner? No I wasn't having mushrooms <laughs> but uh, they talked about Swinging Safari Swinging lame, Safari Lamely but but <laughs> hang on hang on hang on hang on let me get let me finish mm. let me finish it wasn't a porn <laughs> <laughs> it was actually a strain comedy it's pretty good <laughs> But, 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 but they talked about life in the 70s and raising children then. And damn, I'm not selling this any better. Life in the 70s life down in the, the bush. 70, huh? Yeah. But the, at the end of the movie, in case you haven't seen it, they were talking about. No one's seen it. <laughs> You're making it up. Yeah, I'm not making it up. It's, not a, it's a real movie. It's got a score of zero on Rotten Tomatoes. Right, this podcast has ended. <laughs> Fuck you guys. <laughs> what they said at the end was we raised our kids the best we could with the broken tools that were handed to us. And at the time when I started training, I mean, we, ha we had bent tools. That's how we were training dogs. That's the best way we know. And it doesn't necessarily... Fuck now, Josh. <laughs> I'm trying to be, I'm trying to speak from the heart here and all I can hear is <laughs> down the end of the microphone. <laughs> yeah, back to you. Oh, I think, can I just add, I mean, I've had a couple of uh, beverages today, but if I understand correctly, this is my take on that whole thing and what you're saying is... Glenn's unplugging you, me. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> unplugging the microphone. The illusion of control, I think, is important to a point. And so I think in raising a dog, I, I can't speak for raising kids. Mine's still in, like, we're we yet to determine whether I'm going to be any good at that, right? <laughs> but with the dog, I think that giving the illusion of control is very important and for jacking the dog up and making them feel good. And yes, I sit firmly on the fence on this or in a middle ground because I think that you give them the illusion of control, you want them to feel in control and you want them to feel good about it. But... At some point, they're going to choose to do something else because they're not in the mood and it's competition day or whatever. Or So even though they may feel like, and through your conditioning and training and careful practice, they feel like they're the one that's telling you, and let's use heal as a, an example. They're the one that's saying, I want to heal, I want to heal to get what you've got. I'm in control, I'm doing it. One day they're going to say, no, fuck that healing. I've got something else to do. Yeah. And even though all the cues are there and the picture looks the same, they've chosen to do something else and you're going to say, no, you are doing it. 
and that illusion of control disappears at that point, yeah. right? And then uh, you take you're in control, and it becomes very yeah. clear. The day you finally compel them to do it, it disappears. But what you're relying on at that point is that there's enough reps in the bank of having a good time and feeling in control and having a good time in that feeling, like enjoying it and knowing that this is what I want to do. This is how I'm, I'm happy to do it. And then deciding, even though I'm being forced to do it, fuck it, I'll do it anyway, because I'm going to have a good time. Right. Didn't- and you need 10,000 reps or whatever it is in the bank to get to that point. So there needs to be a lot of pushiness, pushiness. I feel like I'm controlling you. And then one day they have to realize uh, uh, the day comes, there's a competing motivator where you say, actually, I'm forcing you to do this. I'm sorry, my friend. This is, it's panning out mm. this way. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the point is that it's, it's orchestrated by us. You know, like it is still an orchestration that we're carrying through that we want the dog to believe that I have some authority in this behavior. But this is behavior by design. This is something that you actually wanted to do. Yeah. And you're making the dog believe this is my thought. What was Skinner's theory on free will? Didn't he say that, that free will was an illusion? He was a Calvinist. Glenn wants you to explain yeah. what Calvinist is. <laughs> yeah, it's just every, everything's, predeter- everything's predetermined. I just want to add something. I'm absolutely on board with what Pat said, and we're all right. But especially me. Especially Pat, yeah. I just would say this. All the the behaviors that I've taught in my dogs that are unnatural, they wouldn't do or find on their own, are absolutely setups that I've convinced them they're in control of, but really I've got the master plan. So I found a way to get them to find things that I really wanted them to find that they would never do if it was outside of our relationship. Ivan Balabanov is this trainer in uh, the United States. And I watched this video of him probably 12 years ago. And he went out and did some session with his dog and he finished his session and uh, given the dog the Frisbee or the ball. uh, And he didn't exit the field. He knelt down with his dog and his dog came to him and he just had a moment However, however you want to say it, whatever was actually happening, you could just, if you knew it, you saw it, it was a moment. And it was like two gladiators coming together after they went out into a battlefield, whooped some ass, and they were celebrating together. And it transcended the ball in the dog's mouth. It was more than the heel I taught you and the out that I taught you and the escort that I taught you or the transport or whatever. It was something bigger than that. And I could feel it. And if you saw it, you would feel it too. And I saw... When I, when I saw that happen, I knew how good it was and I knew that that meant something to me and I wanted it as well. And so I took the time, after all the training sessions, instead of giving the dog the ball and running into their crate or taking them on a lame-ass walkabout and acting like that was something, I took the time to stop and really appreciate what we had done together and to feel my dog's appreciation back. And I don't know if that sounds new age or if it sounds wishy-washy, but it was something that meant something to me and I sought after it as well. And I feel like I had it, I have it, you can have it. And that's two animals that have for the past 30,000 years or whatever you want to accept for the, the domestication of Canis lupus familiaris from what it was to what it is now. However you accept that that happened, we came together in a parallel sort of reciprocal play off of each other way. And it does mean something to walk side by side. And we use toys and food and jackpots and electricity and 
other things to make training. But at the end of the day, there's something we should acknowledge that doing something together, participating in life together is important. And so all the stylized stuff is cool and I like it, but I'd never want it to take away from we're doing something together. And the little competing I've done with my dogs and gone out, I felt like they were fucking warriors out there and I was fighting the same fight that they were fighting. And I never let the ball take away from that or the food plot or any other thing that we've manufactured to make something that's not as real as that itself. And that's kind of what I hang on to still. Mm. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 100% agree. I think relationship is very important. Mm -hmm. Very much. Well, I think even ancient humans found that when they started to form relationships with dogs or wild dogs or wolves or hybrids or whatever they were at the feels time. feels good to work too, man. There's something like self-actualizing in that. They like to go out and do stuff. Mm. That's meaningful. Like that's how you're not a lazy, unproductive, non-contributing member of like the world around you is you go out and you do stuff. And we allow dogs to do that with us. And I don't think there's anything as important for, for a lot of dogs as that. Like we're pretty cool to them by, vir by, by virtue of how we ended up here with them. I had a dog... <laughs> I <don't know>. uh, <laughs> Get through that. Drinking. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a dog, a, a little black Mally that a lot of people here might have seen that I tried to raise absent of any relationship. I tried to be very technical and I did not bond with the dog and I ended up not really liking the dog and she was very proficient in what she did. Very technical and precise, but there was no fire. Mm. There was no heart and soul and it was, it was not for a lack of desire of things. I think it was a it was a learning experience for me that a relationship is important because mm. we didn't have one. In fact, we had a bad one. Mm. Um, mm. And you still was, created the illusion of control. That, that yeah, like she did all the things. She did all the things we needed mm. to, but it was very technical and there was no spirit in it. Mm. And it was it, that was a learning curve for me. It was like, oh, okay, that is important. That that mm. that the fuck around time with the dog mm. is important. Yeah. Hmm. Got a question over here from Cat. Hey, uh, Kat Saunders here from The Canine Company. Um, I've had the pleasure of knowing you guys for a number of years and I know that uh, we're all on the, the same page when it comes to, you know, our learning never stops, we can continue to grow, etc. I'm also of the belief that, you know, it's important for the new up-and-coming trainers to understand, you know, that the learning never ends. So my question is, you know, can you guys share something you've, you've learned more recently and that has really resonated with you? And what piece of information would you share with the people that are starting out, even if it's not necessarily immediately obvious as to how it's relating to training so much? So, you know, what, what's something that, you know, really has resonated with you guys recently, whether it's directly related to training or not? that uh, will help the up-and-comers? Glenn? <laughs> yeah, okay. For me, definitely, it's the concept of play. Something that I undervalued until I started talking. Jay Jack was probably the person that reignited that whole concept with me. He was... The way he would actually get down and, like, rub his dog and in a non-funky sort of way. But he would, um, yeah, he'd get down there and he'd massage the dog and he'd, like, he's just had this great relationship with the dog and he showed me a video of him in his gym back home and he was, you know, after he'd played a game of tug, I could just see him massaging the dog and the look of, of pure bliss on the dog's face. And it was Ladybug, one of our friends, she's just had a litter of puppies lately and when she got them home, she was completely stressed out because she was in an environment she didn't want to be in like most females, they want to sort of harbour the puppies in their own location. 
And she, you could just see her. She had eyes like saucepans and she was like sitting there pinging the whole time. I know I'm making the, the face for you guys and people listening can't see it. But at one stage I sat there and she couldn't sleep. Like she was just wired and completely triggered about the whole event. So I sat there with her and I just started giving her a massage on the shoulders and I started to play with her and I started to talk to her softly and, you know, like talk to her about her puppies and her babies and stuff like that. Now, you take me back 20 years ago, I wouldn't believe that that made any difference. I would be like, I'd be thinking you're a sissy for doing that sort of thing. I'd be kind of like, that is weird new age shit. (laughs) The reality is, is that you talk about a lot of things that you don't actually invest in. You don't get involved in it. And the fact is, is I sat there and I did it and I watched the response of the dog. And science, as I've said to a lot of people, is the technique of paying attention, of observation. And when I watched her, she started to sink into this blissful sort of trance where she actually, she flopped down and she went to sleep. And it was because I'd made her feel comfortable in the environment just by showing her some genuine love, by mm. playing with her, by mm. talking softly with her, by having the relationship that you talked about before. Even Randy, you know, like Forrest was saying to me the other day, at the end of the – I asked him, I said, you know, I'm like everybody else, I want to be coachable. And when I bring people out, I want to learn what they know. Some of these guys know a hell of a lot more about things than I do. And I said to Forrest, just watch what I'm doing, you know, like – have a look at what's happening in the working relationship. And Forrest said to me, at the end, when you guys are finishing up, he said, play with your dog more, man. Like, get involved in that game of tug with the ball because he's running back over to the helpers. He wants to go over and take the ball to Pat and then drop it and bite Pat again because he thinks that's more fun. We did a session the other night. Randy was on fire. He came out. He was working well. He was tuned in. And at the end of the session, I had a really good game of tug with him, like to the point where my hands were throbbing. I was pulling that bloody, um, the rope on the ball so hard. And he walked out of here, like owning that shit, you know, and it was wonderful. It was a really nice thing to see. Like he just, Forrest came up to me afterwards and he goes, perfect man. Couldn't have asked for it better. It felt good. It did feel good. And it changed, you know, look, I may have done this sort of thing before, but never paid attention to it and not really thought too much about it. And yet it's probably something that I would say to other people, like play with your dog more or do this more, but never considered it myself. So that's my thing. That's really cool. And uh, you other legends that we have here, what would be uh, your contribution? She said legend, so we're waiting to hear from you. (laughs) (laughs) I would just say um, take care of yourself like your own health and well-being and uh, being well-rounded away from dog training. That's been something I've revisited lately for myself. It's been cool. So uh, having a balance in life and uh, this stuff is fun and dog training is fun. I'm really privileged. I get to travel and teach and um, hang out with really neat people. And the, the, the thing I've secured for myself lately that's meant the most is just um, being in touch with other things that I love um, outside of it. It's been really healthy for me and uh, my dogs too. So just to maintain a balance and your health, your well-being, Amen. spirituality, if you're into that. Whatever. Can you repeat the question? Um, so what have you learned most recently that has really resonated with you, whether it's directly uh, related to dog training or not, but uh, you think it's important to pass that, that information on? I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to spout some totally unrelated nonsense. Uh, I think a lot about time, not necessarily in a cosmic sense, but uh, I suppose it relates as well. But I think... What Glenn was talking about, did the dog understand the words he was saying? Absolutely not. Does getting rubbed down when you're feeling distressed feel nice? Well, of fucking course. But it's, I'm taking the time to share this moment with you. 
Mm. And I think ultimately when we're talking about transcending a transactional type of relationship, we're talking about time spent. I'm talking about the time I spend with you, you know, seeking something and that, that something can be totally up to your interpretation. Uh, you know, I, th- I think the time I put in to my relationships is ultimately the number one important thing. And so there's people in my life that I have had some, some very, very, very deep relationships with, and I'm not certain these days, if I call them, they'd pick up the phone because I'm not putting in the time. And I have seen that happen with a lot of people and their dogs. They put in a lot of transactional interactions with their dogs. I'm going to give you this thing when you do that thing. But the time they're spending, I don't necessarily know is of the quality that that being is looking for. When Forrest talks about, I'm just, I didn't, I didn't work my dog in the, the sport dog sense. I just went for walks. But if you ask that dog, which do you value? I'm not certain you'd be able to predict which one the dog is going to, to choose because, and, and I think that's, that's kind of what I was talking about when I was addressing Forrest as play functions for something, but it's not necessarily functioning to achieve me more points when I step onto the field. If I don't play with my dog, if I don't take the time to play with my dog, is he going to connect with me in a way that when I need him to do something he really doesn't want to do, he's going to even consider it as a possibility. And so I guess that's something I've been thinking about a lot in regards to training. Mm. just want to give Kat some props. We, uh, me, Kat, and Brent presented a seminar in New Zealand last, last, last year, two years ago, and she, had, she was talking with this group, and she had said that it's the quality of the time spent that's more important than the quantity. I really, that really stuck with me, and I thought about it a lot, and I think that was just a really neat thing that she had said. So, mm. yeah, that was cool. Pat? Uh, I'm tossing up between two things. <laughs> I've been thinking really hard about it. Something I've learned pretty recently is a lot of these dog training principles, things that we, we know really clearly and we apply them to dogs, you can apply to yourself and you can, uh, even though you're in control of them and you know you're doing it, it's still effective. And so to give a, a plug to a brand, I bought a Pavlock. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of those. It's a, it's an electric collar for a person. So you, it's a, it's a, you wear it around your wrist and you can shock yourself. And you can use that in many forms. And My I, God, you're horny. Well, <laughs> well, well, so, hey, that's my line, dude. <laughs> so, so it's actually a pretty versatile sort of thing. And I played with it quite a lot. And it's designed to... <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's designed as a habit-breaking sort of device. Like you can... Um, what habit did you have that you needed to shock yourself? So well, I, mean. I used it in the opposite. So I used... I. Well, well, and this is how, <laughs> but you know how obsessive I get about things. So I was wondered if I could knee popo myself and if I could use it as negative reinforcement. And I did. And I was able to create desire. Like I use it in the gym for certain things. And you, like, I was able to, even though I knew I was doing these things, I was, it still had the desired effect. And I think I spoke about it here when I realized I was overtraining my dog. I put myself in a negative punishment. I locked him in the kennels for two weeks. And while I'm sure that was hard on my dog, it was fucking hard on me. Like I, I'm a dog trainer and I, I think all day, every day about what am I going to do with my dog? And I had two weeks of not 
getting access to him and I actually pulsed Glenn took him like we discussed it and we just said like mm. I was overtraining I really was and I was causing I was flattening my dog out and he was young too yeah I was doing too much mm. and he, he was at a period in his life where he needed to not do much and so I, I took him I orchestrated for him not to be around me and that had a huge effect on me so all these things that we know how to do and it would be real simple for us to impart them into our dogs you can do them to yourself and even if you're aware of it it still works mm. so you can do that stuff so that's um something for sure that uh, i've learned recently and, and is important and i try to explain that to other people but then the other thing that always sort of plays on me and I, i've learned to come to terms with recently is just because you don't understand someone's system doesn't mean it's a bad system so I've, I've watched people's training and, uh, and, and gone, look at this fucking stupid shit. And then they get their dog out and the dog's awesome. I'm like, I'll just shut my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and so just because you don't get it doesn't mean it's not, not going to be good. That's good, Pat. I love the fact that if I was to peel the layers back, just if I was to peel the layers back just enough, you know, there's definitely the, the relationship whichever way shape or form <laughs> sorry laughing at forest whichever way shape or form you know we, we want to look at it. It, it it all comes down to to the relationship but one thing that i think forest touched on which was really important is is definitely about the self-care and you know there's without going down a tangent but uh, you know we care about the dogs collectively you know that's why we wake up every morning we work with dogs and you know sometimes we can uh, fall victim to taking on the baggage of you know they're not so happy ever ever afters and and stuff like that so Kudos to that, and thank you so much. Mm. Appreciate your shares. No, thank you. Yeah, it was a good question. <laughs> You're welcome. Just one thing on that, Kat, before we wind up on your question. A good thing that was mentioned to me quite some time ago and something I've needed reminding of quite regularly through my life is shut your mouth and open your eyes more. I talked about the fact that science is based on the ability to observe behavior or anything that's occurring around you. You know, a lot of lot of scientists are just sitting there watching and they're, they're doing trials and they're observing what's actually happening in the trials. And it's something that, talking about what Pat was saying before, there's, there's often been times where we've had critical discussions about other people's training that we've seen online and then suddenly realize that they're actually doing pretty solid work and they are decent people to their dog. So at some stage, you've got to actually talk less about it and observe more and think, well, there might be something in this, something you can take away from it just by at least going out there and having a look. Absolutely. Um, why some and I were talking earlier today and a lot of the time it's all too often we're too busy listening with the intention to respond mm-hmm. opposed to actually listening to what somebody else has to say. So absolutely. Yep. Anyone else got a question? I heard that uh, uh, Paniotes or Panucci, veteran of the Hello. show actually. Hello. Hey. <laughs> Hey guys, just to kind of add to the discussion, basically things that I would teach my clients were that all dogs were designed to do a job where they were pulling sleds, herding sheep, retrieving game, etc. But now we have dogs, our companions that kind of miss out on that job. And if you don't give them a job, they lack purpose and they find their own ways to fulfill themselves, which could result in, of course, a lot of behavioral issues that most clients um, start to experience obviously a lot of aggression so giving them a job and having that ultimate control gives them a way to fulfill their mind and body and all the things that we discussed you know throughout a lot of the more modern day dog training has gotten really scientific and very beneficial in ways to give a dog a more effective job and I think we should I guess of course when it comes to competition dogs and a lot of working dogs very being very technical is very important however with the more basic obedience within um you know general pet owners working these kind of specific um 
techniques and obedience training gives that dog a sense of purpose so then it's a way of like we i guess we always talk like you guys always talk about on the show is that we don't want to teach our clients to stop the dogs from doing things we want to give them something to do so i think they both come hand in hand once we start fulfilling certain needs of mind and body and making it a regular routine as if those working dogs would have worked in their traditional times that kind of gives us a time of affection and giving them time of play and interaction, but also gives them something to do. Cause I guess the most unnatural thing we do with dogs is put them on a lead. So, but we need to have them on a lead for them to work in our society. So I guess just to add to the conversation, not really a question, but I guess it would, it's kind of merging both ideas together. Yes, control is important, but letting them express themselves naturally is also important. However, not in the world that we live in, the dogs can act in a specifically natural way because they're not allowed to do all the natural behavior. So finding a way to fulfill that. So then bring a circle around, do the same thing with ourselves so that we can live a more happier experience. Thank you. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that for sure. The surrogate outlet where, where possible, right? Like if, if you've got a hunting dog and you don't hunt, well, you've got to give him something that feels similar to that. Agreed. I think everybody in this room all agrees that we have a kinship with what we're trying to do with dogs. There's probably not one person I'd look around here and say, there's a person in this room that wouldn't want to have a better relationship with a dog. And the reason I know that is because they paid money and took time off work to come here and learn from two guys that came out from America and they're giving their time up to learn more and more about training. The reality is for us people who, well, I mean, the people who exist in the pet dog industry is that a lot of people don't have the relationship that we share with dogs they kind of we were talking about this before some people look at their dogs like i'm i'm not really sure whether or not i like you i'm not really sure whether or not you fit a place in my household and this might be a person who at one stage was calling this dog their baby sharing the bed with their dog you know like the dog was living in the bedroom with them the dog was coming on trips with them the dog was one of the most important aspects of their household and then suddenly something changed it might have been that the dog grew up it might have mean the dog was jumping on them more it might have mean that they had their own child for whatever reason it is they disconnected from the dog you know it was sort of like they unplugged and they consciously did it too and for us who are pet dog trainers that's a distressing thing Forrest talked about before taking care of yourself in the industry and that's one thing that when you have extreme passion for those things and you're all seeing that on an ongoing basis, it's a hard thing to deal with. Like it really starts grating at you after a period of time because you say in your mind, body and soul, I can fix this problem easily. Like it's not hard. It's not a difficult thing to, to resolve. But then they say, well, mm, I don't know. If you can't fix it in five minutes, I don't know whether I want to remain here anymore. It's a hard thing. It's tough. Hmm. So, my name's Alyssa, I'm from Canine Compass. With that stuff, I've said to a number of young trainers myself um, who have got all caught up in the clients that they're working with, I'm like, you, you cannot care more about someone else's dog. Like, you can't care more about that dog more than the owner can. Pat said that the other day, and you. I think that's a... Uh, Did I? I think so. Was it you who said that? I don't think so. <laughs> First time I heard that was a, a bunch of years ago from a guy named Mark Goldberg. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. And that's it. That no. The, yes, that was your podcast. We were talking, and it was Mark yeah. Goldberg's. Yeah, and you're he, right. He yeah. he's pretty pretty commonly said never be more invested in a client's dog than themselves. It will destroy you. Like yeah. That's life advice, though. That's where oh, yeah, I, for sure. Yeah, like dog training advice. is life. Yeah. That's where I want to be the dog allocator's job. 
That's where I want to be like, no, yeah. I'm taking that, that dog. Give it to me. Idea. Give it to me. Yeah. And and then I'm saying, hey, I found the dog that you want. All right. All right. <laughs> there's some there's some tired people in the room. Hey, has anyone else got anything else they want to put their hand up for? Does anyone want to be past the microphone? Anybody last, here? Last question opportunity. Uh, so Sharon Patton. I think sometimes in striving to be better and better dog trainers, we forget to be better and better dog owners. Um, and I think sometimes we always strive to be right and other people are wrong or this concept is right. Yes, we control them. No, we don't. And I think we forget that in certain circumstances it's all true. Um, there are moments when we control the dogs. There are moments when we don't. But I think often we can learn a lot from our clients in stepping back and just being a dog owner. I think too much as dog trainers we project our agenda onto our dogs rather than step back and look at what have I got here, what is this personality and where can we go with it. We get a dog for a purpose. We get a dog with an agenda in mind and I think sometimes we can really um, suppress our dog's potential in getting a dog for a specific purpose rather than seeing the dog we've got, reading their personality, as you would with a child. You don't have a baby and go, well, this kid's going to be a golfer. You see who you've got and you work with that. And I think that's something that always sticks in my mind with the dogs that I've got. I spent, you know, two and a half years trying to get my dog to be a herding dog, fighting with her and and challenging and really just battling with her only to realise that she doesn't have the instinct to herd even though she's a herding breed. And as soon as I realised that, we stopped and I thought, okay, what is she good at? Let's do that. And it changed our relationship. It changed my whole training philosophy. It went right back to let's work together on something that we both enjoy rather than trying to mould her to be the dog I wanted her to be to fit a specific performance I wanted. That which she was not. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I've killed it. <laughs> no, there's a lot to that. There's people thinking about it a lot. No, when you can shut the four of us up, that's pretty nice. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think ultimately if, if, if more people had that type of perspective, professionals or not, I think there'd be a lot less dogs that are living in a situation that's undesirable to themselves. Yeah. Like I, I recently got a Dutch Shepherd. Nazgul. Nazgul. Uh, I got a lot of love for this dog and I was trying to pry him out of this dude's hands for a while before he finally gave him to me. He fits really well in my lifestyle and he, he like really resonates with me as a dude, you know, like we hang, it's my fucking man. (laughs) And, uh, he bites people. He loves biting human beings, right? It's like really, like really deep in his, in his soul. That's what he likes to do. Uh, and, and this guy who had him previously called me up and was like, Hey man, this dog is like jacking my cousins and like people come into the house and he's fucking them up. Like, what am I going to do? And my first piece of advice was, well, you give him to me. (laughs) But you know, when he first got this dog, he was living on a farm, uh, grown weed. And this dog just ran rampant around the farm. Just did. He lived like force lifts, you know, (laughs) Just, just piss on tomato plants and do your thing, you know, tomato plants. Yeah. And, uh, only 12 of them. (laughs) And, uh, he moved back to Buffalo and he moved into an apartment and he had 
he had three roommates and three roommates worth of guests is, is how I always kind of like preface that to people. So there's a lot of, of change in this dog's life. And, and he tried really, really hard to make this dog into that type of house pet that was going to exist in that world. And the dog got in some seriously dangerous situations, you know, and, and hospitalized the person, you know, like really did some damage. And, you know, that, that's just like the first kind of mentality that comes to me or the first story that comes to me when I hear what you're talking about. And I think it is something that if more of us had that mentality, I didn't get this dog to do a sport. I got this dog and now I got to see where this dog is going. I think ultimately the dog would be better off, but my lifestyle is going to be better off mm. because I'm not trying to put a square peg in a round hole per se. Just me and this dude are going to figure out how we live. And, and I know who he is to a certain extent, so I can augment my lifestyle to fit a certain set of parameters that are natural to him without, uh, with lack of a better word, break him in order to make him fit that mold. I had a Dutchie in my life years ago, a dog called Ghost, that I still, I still say is the best dog I've ever seen in real life. And I really loved that dog. I was a, I was a part of raising him. What was uh, your quote? No one kills ghosts but ghosts? No one kills ghosts but ghosts. He got parvo. Um, he, he, he was indestructible, this dog, right? Um, he, was a, he was a machine. And I loved him. I wanted to keep him. But in the same deal, like, he was a killer. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he's a siege dog with the police now. Like, that was what he had to be. It, it would be, make no sense for me to put a bunch of obedience on that dog and do sport with him and, and, and be my hubris. Like, hey, look how good I am. And he'd be capable of that. But that dog wanted to fucking hurt people. That was what... <laughs> That was what he was born and bred to do, and that's what he gets to do on the daily now, right? So, like, I, I yeah, I agree with that very much. Kudos to Ghost. Oh, mm. nobody kills Ghost but Ghost. Nobody kills Ghost but Ghost. Nobody gets between a I'll put a, and I'll, spray. We, we sometimes make an album of of uh, we sometimes make an album of photos to go along with the episode, and I'll put a photo of Ghost in there, and you can all look at Ghost and just be like, "Holy fuck, that dog was something." Like a head, like a pit bull on a dutchie. It was something special, that dog. Anyway. Brent Dry. Brent Dry, man who has a face that's a mix between Fergie and Jesus and a beard that smells like the summertime. Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> that is me. Jesus, so, uh, what, a, what if, a fucking endorsement that was. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> so Brent's going to have like a line of people smelling his beard before we finish the show. <laughs> And <laughs> and cats in the front, the bouncer. So be Ooh, careful. Uh, my my question to to the panel, probably a little bit more directed towards you, Josh. Actually, Jesus, how much can you bench? <laughs> like six. <laughs> we've fucking we've had that discussion. It's not it's not worthy. Yeah, I'm just a little guy. I'd really like to know where your love of hobbies that you actually have away from as professional dog trainer so your hobbies what you've learned from your hobby have what have you put into your dog training world so for me josh with you it's probably jiu-jitsu mm. and obviously your philosophy and that sort of stuff so for any of you guys but certainly with josh in regards to jiu-jitsu what have you learned from that that you apply to your dog training as well mm. well Jiu-jitsu has taught me probably more about life than it has about any one particular thing. Jiu-jitsu has a certain amount of forced humility. 
you know, uh, there's some, some stuff, uh, we were talking earlier today about the first time I ever did jujitsu against a woman. And, you know, I told myself I was going to be like, ah, I'm going to take it easy. Right. And like 30 seconds later, I was like fucking almost unconscious. Right? <laughs> and, uh, I get like, it's forced humility. You know, um, my partner, Jessica does a lot of yoga and I always joke that jujitsu is yoga that somebody else does to you, you know? Uh, so, um, were you wrestling Jasmine when you got choked out? Nah, she'll go to sleep. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I feel, no, like, no, feel like we need to wrap this up right now. Yeah, yeah. this is. We need to get the mats no. out. Joss and Jazz are getting on the floor uh, in bite suits. Yeah. So, so I weigh like uh, I weigh eighty four kilos. I found today. It's like one hundred and eighty five pounds. It's basically what I've weighed since I was fucking fifteen years old. I just nothing I can do can really change that. Uh, I the first time I did jujitsu uh, against a female is this uh, girl Valerie, and um, like Good soaking night. wet, we- wearing her gi weighs maybe 120 pounds. So I was like, nah, I'm like, take it easy. It's a, it's a girl, right? Like I got little sisters. I'm trying to like thrash this lady, and like she fucked my day up. <laughs> <laughs> and in the second time I rolled with her, I was like, all right, like. Homegirl's getting it, like, I'm going to redeem myself. And it was like maybe a minute, and then I was tapping out, right? Um, but, but it forced upon me this idea that, like, I have this, this mentality. I'm going to do this thing. Life disagrees. You know, the, she just was not willing to follow the program I had laid out in front of her. Uh, you know, she wasn't buying it. Um, and, and so that was one of the things I, I learned immediately was, you know, my ideas about what's going to happen aren't necessarily the rule for sure. You know, jujitsu has taught me that. And another thing jujitsu taught me for sure is kind of cliche in jujitsu is become comfortable being uncomfortable, right? So there's times where desperately I wish I was not getting fucked up. Like, I, I wish that was not happening to me, but there's quite literally nothing I can do about it. So Sam Harris uh, talks about it like drowning. Because anybody who's ever been in water and feels like they're drowning, it, it doesn't make that much sense. Like, I feel like I should just, like, flap my arms around and be fine. But you drown, you know? And that's what jujitsu against somebody who just knows more does to you. I'm going to do this, and they've got 17 different ways to make that ineffective. So jujitsu has become a part of my underlying programming in a way that I think it's always slanted towards just recognizing I might have an idea, but I probably don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> and I, I think jujitsu has shown me a lot in that, you know, and that's, that's a, a big part of what I do outside of dog training is jujitsu. And, you know, the other thing I do a lot of outside of jujitsu is fly fish and, you know, fly fishing is something I really put my heart and soul into. I don't talk about it as much as I talk about other stuff because to a certain extent, it's a bit private to me. Fly fishing happens. It's, it's me and the world. I'm, I'm by myself on this stream Nothing anybody has to say to me influences me in that moment. It's me and this weird little fish that I'm trying to convince to eat a piece of hair. 
right? <laughs> like, 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 a, like, a, like it's, a, it's a real advanced form of fuckery, right? <laughs> I've, I've tied it to look similar to this little bug and I'm floating it on the surface in exactly the right spot at exactly the right time and I have to do exactly the right thing when the fish agrees to interact with me. Um, so fly fishing is also something that, that has really influenced the way I approach dogs in a lot of ways that, that I guess I didn't really think about previous to that. Mm. Appreciate it, mate. And from the other end of that uh, cookie, it's the on. same question. Yeah, you're good. In regards to you riding your bike, because I know that's one of your... My meditation. L- well, I was going to say let down your hair, but mm. probably meditation is better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Make Feel a hair the joke. wind in your scalp. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't make those jokes, mate. I look in the mirror. Um, do you see correlations between a hobby like that and dog training at all? Yes, I do, because I think that it it is one thing, like I call it my meditation because it actually is, it allows me to be a little centred when I feel a little bit congested with everything that's going on. The fact is, is that, I mean, I, I don't get to train dogs a lot like I used to. The one thing I do get to do, which I'm fortunate, is I get to pick what I want to do. But at the same token, I don't I don't spend a lot of time training pet dogs like I used to do. Like that used to be all encumbering. That was all I did. 24 hours, at, well, not 24 hours, but five to six days a week, that's what I was doing. But, you know, now I've got the stress of working in, in a business and, and keeping that going and trying to make sure that we're doing what we need to do. I do get to enjoy the PSA side of things. I get to work with a group of people that I elect to be with. And that's great because I'm around people who are essentially my friends, all sharing a common goal, something that I actually enjoy doing. However, it's, I mean, you need escapism from everything from time to time. And again, to go back to what Forrest said before, you've got to take care of yourself. And in any business that you're doing, just as a human being, you've got to look after yourself. The dog training industry can be, a very fruitful one. It can be very generous, but it can also be very demanding. It can be very cruel at times. And you need to get away from it. You need to have a complete divorce from it from a little bit of time. And when I'm on the bike and I've got nothing to think about but hanging on and not dying, I'm also thinking about, I don't know, it clears my mind up. It helps me get back to a point of parity where I'm not constantly having these backwards and forwards thoughts or things that coming into my mind that have no place being there it empties everything out and by the time I've got off by the time I'm exhausted and I'm home again and I pulled into the garage you know I walk inside and I'm sitting down and I'm thinking what are we going to do at PSA tomorrow night you know like what are we going to work on what am I going to do with Randy how am I going to get him ready for his next section and it's pleasing me that I'm actually having those thoughts because it, it brings me back to a point where rather than thinking I don't want to think about this I want to avoid that that topic I'm actually thinking I want to think about this you know I'm excited to think about it again and then when I see Pat we're all excited and we're motivated to talk about training dogs again and it's great for me Brent Dry asking the fucking hard questions yeah. I know he's really pinning us yeah. like Andrew Jesus Denton Christ. I just wanted to I wanted to say something really quickly yeah please do man I've always uh, I've enjoyed over the last few years uh, when I've come and stayed with Glenn um, talking with him about dogs uh, and training we've always had great conversations and uh, this was the first time here that i got to observe you training dogs and uh, you've really got it man yeah like uh thanks buddy yeah that was great to see uh your gifted dog trainers so i appreciate to that. acknowledge Thank you. that mm-hmm. oh, i really appreciate that coming from you that's a very very high compliment mm-hmm. thank you do, do you want me to move out of the way so you can hang on to his pocket yes 
<laughs> yes, we need to we need to embrace after that. <laughs> Pat, have you got something on that in regards to hobbies and how how those sorts of things correlate to what you do? Yeah, I guess so. I think I had a whole separate career that I left uh, almost three years ago, getting pretty close to the day. And I don't talk about it a lot, but I still, I still dip my toe in that area a little bit, and I, that I probably will forever. I, I, I'm probably unable to to not do that. And hunting is something that I do as well. That is is something that in Australia is not something people really do a lot, and it's not something people talk about a whole deal. But that's very important to me. Um, we just lost all the vegans. We lost all the vegans. Uh, but even if it's. They haven't, listened, they haven't been listening for like nine months. <laughs> <laughs> um, but being away and doing that, something that feels like what I'm used to, you know, you don't spend 12 years in the army without and just go cold turkey on that. It's just not something that happens. So I always kind of keep my foot in, my toe in that water at least. And I don't think I'll ever be able to fully stop. Like that's, I didn't leave the army on my own terms. Like... I was kicked out of the army. I broke my back, and so I, 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 um, I would have stayed in the army forever. So I don't think I can ever really reconcile not having something to do in that industry. It's important for me. This is a long way from dogs, but kind of ask the question: Is that uh, it's important for me to stay in that fight in a capacity with which I can to feel like I am contributing to people who are really important to me, who are still in the fight gunfighting uh i can't do that anymore but i can support them in other roles and so where i can it's important to me i do that um yeah that's it appreciate it man that's really cool um and one for forest i suppose <laughs> brother um hearing you uh hearing you talk before was super and reading uh Egasoto, and what you said before was pretty close. Um, is that something that was that a before and after for you in regards to that the spiritual side of it, but the that real earthiness of getting back to connecting with a dog? There's a book called The Story of Edgar Sawtell, which is what Brent's referring to. And I was gifted it by it was a girlfriend of mine at the time. It's a modern play on Hamlet. Boy and his dogs. Father that dies early, a king. An uncle that comes in, swoops up the mom. Son that's outcasted. Has his own journey, accompanied by magical dogs. Uh, which is kind of how I view my life. And um, a pretty, like a, a bit of redemption at the end. Uh, the the book, I feel like I've read certain books at just the right times in life. And that was a book that came to me at an important time. And so it was a catalyst for a few things, but things I was feeling probably in my heart already. And just um, some words that were put to things that I wanted to put into action. So uh, was if the question was, did that, did that book start something or did that book tr trigger something? Then I would say that the book maybe gave me the reckoning that I needed at a time. And so it's just a hell of a good story too, you know, so that was kind of neat, but yeah, definitely set something off for me. But to say this really quickly, uh, you guys had asked when I was on the podcast alone a, a while back, books that have been important to me. 
I kind of didn't, wasn't sure what to say, but um, there is one book that I think was probably one of the more important books that I've read or at least meant a lot to me and probably because of the time that it came to me when I read it and what it meant. And that was, uh, it's an old book. It's a, it's a popular book, at least in the States. It's called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And it's written by a guy named Robert M. Persig. And there's, um, in the original publication of it on, if you picked it up and it's like page 167. And I, I only know that because, um, I've picked it up a lot in bookstores and looked at that page and it happens to be there quite often, but there's this passage about, um, just what it, what it means to be a craftsman and interact with your material and how fluid and natural and um, reciprocal that can be. And it's more mechanical and it's, and it's more contrived when it's not natural. And, uh, but the title I think says it all because motorcycle maintenance feels like that's a science or something, but it's the art of motorcycle maintenance. So there can still be an artistic application to that mechanical craftsmanship that you would approach any sort of material with. So you take care of your motorcycle and you feel like you're following a set of instructions. You're doing this, you're doing that, but there could be art to that as well. It's a passion. Right. It's a real passion. That's right. And so what, what Robert M. Percy, he's an interesting guy. He kind of went crazy. He developed this alter ego named Fedreus. He was, uh, he was a teacher at Bozeman state, Montana, Montana state in Bozeman. They gave him electroshock therapy to try to kill this Fedreus guy, bring him back to his normal self. He got out, suppressed the alter ego, took his son on a motorcycle trip, and basically he he writes about that as he goes. Um, but he went way too deep into some, like, this is his own thinking about certain things. But it's the marriage of this romantic world, which I tend to naturally live in a little bit more. If you kind of like, if you know me and you hang out with me and stuff, I'm like a bit like that. And then there's, um, we'll call it more like a mechanical world you might even say science and art in the marriage of those two things so <laughs> um, so uh, but there is in there is you can approach maintaining your motorcycle or your small engine or your dog training or your computer programming or whatever it is your photography with an artistic touch and that's something we can all strive for and those things sh it should be this way Amen. I'll just say this though. Um, also, I, one of the things I've, uh, it's been important to me is I've shrunk my sphere of wants a lot in the last few years. And it's allowed me to, um, like the, by desiring less, you're satisfied more with what you have. And then I can be better at the things I choose to put my time in. So it's a ben, bit of essentialism and I become more of an essentialist. So there are certain things that I, I chose to sit down, identify that were important to me, relationships, activities, stuff that I want for myself. I wrote those things out. I decided I was going to commit to those other things wouldn't fit because they weren't important. And so I'm able to focus on them better and be better at them. And that's brought me some satisfaction in life. So. Deep. Mm, very, <laughs> um, very deep beer. All right. Anybody else? Is there no one else? Are you not entertained? If we're, if we're <laughs> recommending books, uh, I don't know how many of you guys read Donald McCaig. Um, what's the title? Mr. And Mrs. Dog. <laughs> Seriously? No, I fucking swear to God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, Donald McCaig is a, is a sheepdog trainer. What? What, it, what? In the front of it, not to the side of it. Sorry, Glenn. Yeah, in the tip, not the shaft. We take the sound here pretty serious. <laughs> oh, he knows. He knows. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. Oh. 
<laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Dog, I think, is a, a book that's that's about this guy's journey. He goes to Scotland to buy a dog. You know, he just he just wants to get a dog in the beginning of of this story, and then his story continues how he's training his dogs for sheepdog trials, and he he kind of trials these dogs around the world, but. Uh, the guy's got a real way with words and, and has brought me close to tears a few different times with, with some things that he said about dogs. And, um, you know, this dude next to me is, has had a big influence on my Bars life with dogs. Next to Josh. Uh, and that's, that's Forrest Mickey. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I, I one time posted a, a video of Forrest working with his dogs and I used a Donald McKay quote, uh, in that post and, and it came from that book and, and, it really resonated with me a lot in, in how I view my interactions with dogs and, and things that I think that are really important to me and how I approach that type of thing. Um, and, and without butchering it, I think he, he said something that I thought was pretty, pretty dope. Um, he said, working within and against their limits, a flawed man and flawed dog can sometimes achieve a kind of elegance that looks very much like perfection. And his whole book is this very romanticized type of story about his journey to find his, you know, quote, perfect dog that he found on three or four different occasions and, and some asshole wouldn't sell him. You know, <laughs> he found this like, that's the perfect dog. And they're like, no, you can't have it. So mm. he went and found the other perfect dog. But um, I, I think that book itself is something that I think a lot of us should read. And it, it connected me with a way that I thought was really important. I don't want to sound contrived in the depth of the conversation that we've been having, but I think personally for myself, a lot of people I met and still do meet to this day that dogs being involved in the dog industry with dogs, dogs have saved them. Yeah. They've had some mm. form of salvation. Do you guys feel like that in the room? Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I, I mean, for a part of my life, there's a, there's a section of my life that I feel like I've had some salvation through being with dogs. You know, like it's a, it's, it's not just something that I, I feel weird about saying. It's something that I enjoy talking about is that I don't do this because it's a monetary gain. I do it because I love doing it. I mean, I'm, I'm still in this industry because I love being around dogs and people who genuinely are passionate about dogs. There's something about it. There's a, there's a real connection to it. I can't explain it. It's just, it's something you have to feel, not, not explain, I, I believe. Well, they say you should finish on a high note, so I too will recommend a book that I read to my son the other day called Dr. Dog, which I will post the photo of in the, the photo Facebook album, but it contains advice that you should never scratch your bum and lick your thumb. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's advice from Dr. Dog, and uh, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you're lucky you're hearing, you should jump onto whatever subscription service you download us from, like, rate, share, subscribe, tell a friend. Thank you to all you guys in the audience. Thank you especially to those people that asked some cool questions. That was fun. Uh, when we got stuck, you really picked us up. And as always, we had some little bit of emotion in here, so thank you very much. And don't um, lick Pat's thumb. Not after I've scratched my bum, Dr. Dog says so. It's actually a pretty funny books about this dog with his family that are just fuck-ups and the dog has to take care Is of it. Is it as good as Uncle Bumala? Uh, <laughs> perhaps better. Josh, Forrest, thank you very much. Had a great time today. Two days to go. I'm pretty excited about that. It's going to be good fun. And that's it. Glenn, music. music.